I gotta be real. This episode came really close for me to being Lamentation status. I mean, it's not. There's worse. There's so much worse. And that's kind of what Salvage did, is the fact that there's worse. But also, uh, Roger Carmel, who actually will be covering uh, something else at some point in the year. I'm not sure rel when relative to this episode going live. Because he's in the Transformers, the movie, like the most awkward, awkwardly named movie I've ever covered. But anyways, he, he's he's a lot of what uh, salvages this, which is funny because he became sufficiently popular to be one of the truly rare exceptions on TOS. A guest star played by the same actor who shows up in multiple episodes as the same character. Now that may sound like a huh nowadays, since you know we have. Q and Barkley and God knows who else. You know, it's a more common thing nowadays. But back in the day, that just didn't happen for reasons I've already told you about. You know, the the whole preference of having any episode that can be slotted in and out anywhere. Remember, this was before VHS, and this wasn't really in the syndication era either, so there wasn't really a lot of rewatches per se. And most viewers didn't have a lot of options for watching an episode a second time when this was going live, which is also contributing. It was a good time, though, to mention that this was actually a candidate for the pilot. Both of them. I've already mentioned that The Cage had several pilot options, and I mentioned that uh, Where No Man Has Gone Before had several pilot options. The only one that coincides with both is Mud's Women. Now, why am I pointing that out? Because someone, Gene Roddenberry, was really pushing this episode to be something that he wanted to produce. Again, I don't want to fling aspirations, but there are many corroborating reports that say that Roddenberry uh, kind of liked to do this thing where he sort of, you know, uh, acted out sexual fantasies in the show. I'm, I'm just going to say that. That's their wording, not mine. NBC turned this one down, by the way, for the pilot, for the following reasons. Because they had no interest in watching an intergalactic pimp pimp out three space hookers. Their words, not mine. Yeah. Um. <laughs> this episode was written by Stephen Kendall, who only wrote uh, like a grand total of three episodes off after this ever. Uh, one of which is an the other ep mud episode, another which is another mud episode, and then an episode of TAS. This is directed by Harvey Hart. Hint, hint. It doesn't matter. He'll never direct Star Trek ever again. I'm telling you, it's a trend with TOS. There's just so much weird stuff to discuss when it comes with this show. This was such a a, a shoestring sh show. It's one of the reasons why I'm willing to give it way more leeway than I would a lot of other things. That and the fact that it was made, you know. In the 60s. <clears throat> Ju Justman, you know him, he really wanted to do as best as they possibly could with the set that they had. Yes, set, singular. They really didn't have much when it came to alien planets. If you pay attention, you'll notice that basically every pla alien planet looks the same. He had a couple of ideas to flesh that out, one of which is something they used for a decent amount of the show. Changing the coloring of the lighting that was lighting the set. He put he just put gel tabs in front of the lights. You know what it is. 
that actually caused a lot of problems, and it, they were relatively... Why can't I talk today? Ugh, relatively unpopular on set. But I do think it, it, the end result did work pretty well. You know, it's, it's not super obvious that it's the same set from virtually every other episode. <clears throat> a couple other interesting things to talk about. This is still obviously in the early drafts. Vulcanian. I think this is actually the last reference to Vulcanian. I could be wrong. And also lithium, which, by the way, is a real thing. This is actually kind of funny. Harvey Lynn, the, uh, the science advisor I've already mentioned, he's the guy who suggested dilithium because lithium's a real thing. <laughs> and doesn't work this way. So he was like, why don't we call it dilithium instead? Oh, that's a good idea. And it would become dilithium in the future. Also, the funny thing is the way they treat lithium is basically fuel, even though the dialogue insists that it's just something to help conduct the energy of the ship. But everything, every, everything about the construction of the narrative makes it sound like they're going to the local gas station. I don't mean that as a negative per se. It's just I feel like they hadn't quite narrowed down how any of this stuff worked and probably did not care. Because let's be honest, the point of this episode is va-va-voom, Dragon Quest Eight reference. And, um... Well, let, before I get into that, I want to talk about two other things. First of all, Harlan Ellison was actually on the set for the creation of this episode. He wasn't doing anything, he was just visiting. He was actually in the middle of working on City on the Edge of Forever while this was being made. Which, uh, if you've looked at the episode list, you'll notice is a little bit after this. It just kind of shows how so much of this show was kind of being smushed and made up on the fly. Like, there's a... I've talked about this, and it's been fascinating studying uh, the making of TNG, DS9, Voyager, and Enterprise. Because all of them follow similar patterns in their construction. That is to say, literally the physical practicality of how they make the episode go from initial idea to broken script to the first, you know, several drafts until we get to a shooting script, and then they gather the cast, you know, and, and as they're in the process of that, at about script two or three, they start making the sets, and they start working on the visual effects, and start prepping people to, to either make the models, or later on make the CGI, and do whatever they have to do so that when it's time to shoot, they're going to go, it's a machine. It's a well-oiled machine, uh, but practiced by a lot of people who know what they're doing. None of that is here for TOS. I know I've talked many times about how most of these people are involved in television, but not like this or anywhere close to this extent. It was just a ramshackle bunch of people running around constantly trying to get work done on 15 different projects simultaneously. It's actually astonishing this show is as good as it is, the whole franchise, the, the whole series, I mean, TOS, because of how ridiculous its construction was. Uh, anyways... And I don't think one person gets credit for that, by the way. I think they all do. Uh, Jerry Finnerman. Jerry Finnerman is the director of photography for season one of TOS. And he was very much encouraged and pushed, do whatever. Do, do whatever as, as wild as you want to make it, as crazy as you feel like it. Um, use whatever colors you can. Just Just try to exemplify what this is. And the reason he was giving was because they really wanted to show the technical side of the show, which I know is weird coming from a modern perspective. But at the time, remember, colored TVs were not the norm. They existed. There were colored sets out there. But NBC, one of NBC's biggest selling points at this point in history, and I'm sure any of you who studied the history of network television knows what I'm talking about here, was that they produced their shows in color. 
all our shows are in color. It was actually closed for like 98%, but all our shows are in color. Thus, that being a selling point. You, t- you tune into NBC, you get the shows on that fancy new colored TV you got, huh? Huh? And so they were trying to push that, which was a brilliant idea, because that helped give the producers more reason to keep Star Trek on the air. I love talking about this stuff and just discussing the, the, the makings of It's just fascinating to me. I'd love to make TV myself someday, no joke. It's actually uh, one of my many dreams to expand the extant into... Well, I, I say TV, you know, episodic shows, since we're kind of past, you know, traditional TV at this point in history. But anyways, maybe I should just go to Netflix and get a blink check. <laughs> uh, let's talk about the episode proper. I don't want to, because this episode sucks. Actually, funny thing, Grace Whitney was on the scene. And she She's not in this episode. She was just here to try and get acclimated to the actors and the director and the photographers and the cameramen and try to figure out how things go. Basically... She was trying to do a good job. Ouch. I I mean, that's a good thing, and it shows a lot about how she approached this and how much she cared about doing the best she possibly could. It's just interesting to think about. So. uh, You know, I don't... At some point, we're going to have to bring up sexism in TOS. We're going to have to. I'd rather not, if I'm being completely honest. Because because just bringing it up is going to cause issues. And people are going to be like, as people usually are. Although, by the time this episode has been recorded, uh, a.k.a. right now, Far Beyond the Stars has actually already gone live. And you guys were awesome during that one, so maybe I shouldn't be so afraid. I don't know. I hate giving my opinions on the internet about things that could be considered controversial. <laughs> Even just saying that, I suppose I should clarify. One of the biggest uh, excuses slash defenses I usually hear for TOS is, oh, it was just a different time. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't make it good. <laughs> it doesn't make it better. It just gives a reason for why it's bad. Now, this is probably not the sexist... Sexistist? Of TOS's episodes... But at the same time, and I hate even using that word, but but I'm, I'm sorry, the women are just treated terribly in this episode. The only one who gets any kind of anything is Eve. And she drifts in and out of acceptability, uh, depending on the mo- needs of the moment. But at least she actually has, you know, lines and a character and the desire to actually frickin' do something with her life other than simply be a product that is being sold to a person. Because <sighs> we have our cold open, right? Someone is flying out of control and imperils the ship, which is probably the weirdest cold open I've ever seen in Star Trek, right there. And then the transport of shenanigans happen. This is another one of those problems of judging a show this early on. Like, if this was an Enterprise episode, I'd be like, why aren't they just transporting the people over the first time they see them, before they even extend the deflector shields? Just beam them over. It's an emergency. Or send over the shuttlecraft. Well, the problem is the transporter rules haven't been established yet, and the shuttlecraft doesn't exist yet. So it's kind of hard to judge. I just look at this like, hmm, maybe they could get the grappler, you know, tow it out. They do have tractor beams on this ship, but those haven't been invented yet either. You see my problem? It's hard to dissect some of these things when just so many of the rules have been tossed out the window, or rather haven't been invented yet. But anyways, whatever. So, they beam them over. 
There's a nice little tidbit where McCoy mentions how he never trusted the damn thing either. This is what, episode 3, 4, something like that? Depending on how you define it. And McCoy already doesn't trust the transporter. Just an interesting little tidbit. It's always fascinating seeing where things start for me. Uh, this is something you could track in Star Wars as well. A lot of elements of Star Wars that we now consider commonplace, their or origination is kind of weird to think about. You know, I talked about this in DS9 too. Think about how much Section 31 has informed modern Trek, and it wasn't invented until Season 6 of DS9. Anyways, <clears throat> so then... Then the hotties show up. This is when the episode loses me. About about a minute in, it's, it's it's a little more. It's closer to five minutes in. So they beam over the incredibly sexy ladies, and oh, they're they're so amazing. I just oh, all I can do is stare. And okay, you remember how I complained about this in the cage? How people would actually be cut off in mid sentence just because of how gorgeous they are, right? Remember that? Well, it's the same thing. It's almost the exact same approach. In fact, it's doubly irritating because what happens here is Scotty and McCoy are just staring gobsmacked while Kirk repeatedly asks, Did you get them? Did you beam them over? Hello, transporter room. Hello, transporter room. Hello, transporter room. And this whole time they're just, they're just, oogle, oogle, oogle. While Spock is just standing there also doing nothing, even though he's immune to their charms because he's a Vulcanian. Or part Vulcanian, excuse me. Then, the, the, the camera follows lovingly really close to their hindquarters as they're walking down the corridor. We've got to make sure we show that ass. Very important. And then they just start sauntering through, and everyone's like, oh my god, who are there? And they make a point of showing that constantly. I'm going to go ahead and stop complaining about it now, if that's okay with you. It's because if I, if I brought it up every single time it happened, it would literally be every single scene they're in, except for the end. It's aggravating, and it is, ha it is true every single time they're on camera. So, okay, so, um, thank thankfully, even though they are burning out their lithiums, a fuel source, or whatever, is only two days away which they manage despite the fact that they lose the last core on the way there. I guess they drift the rest of the way, which actually would make sense, except for the fact that you can't drift and warp, so that makes less sense. I have no idea what's going on at this point. Dissecting the tech of TOS, I mean, there's an episode where someone controls the ridiculous amount of complications and convolutions of a human body and the trillions of different signals and ideas that have to be sent at every, every single second with a button. One button. So, uh, it's hard to dissect the tech, you know what I'm saying? Anyways. So then, uh, we see, oh, this is a good one. We see Mud has a future police record. Now, what do you think that means? Do you think it means it's a, it's a record for future police because this is set in the future? Or do you think it's when he inevitably commits a crime again, that will be his record for when he does so? I'm not sure which one of those is worse. You go ahead and tell me your thoughts on that one. But then, this is actually really funny. So he's a smuggler, and he has used counterfeit currency, because obviously the no-money thing hasn't even been invented yet. And yes, I know they technically have to have some kind of currency, and we've talked about Trek economics over and over and over. Some people seem to misunderstand my per perspective, so let me just say this very bluntly. 
the writers don't understand Trek economics. That's really the point I try to make every time I bring it up. Moving on. But this is great. His sentence was psychiatric treatment, which was considered uh, less than successful. Now you're probably thinking, well, doesn't that sound like a good thing to do to a criminal? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All we have to do is make them right. People don't commit crimes in the future. They're just made right. You remember that? It was TNG. Yeah. Again, we can see that idea was bouncing around in, in Runver's head pretty early on, wasn't it? Remember, this is one he put together. Uh, he didn't actually write it. That was uh, Stephen Kendall, but he is. Yeah, he, he, this was one of his original treaties, and he did work very closely with the writing on it. So, anyways, so then we see the overall approach. Uh, first of all, he's wiving settlers, which I'd like to make fun of, but there's actually a really, really, really long-standing real-life historical precedence for wiving settlers, because the settlers go out and they settle places, and then they're like, well, this sucks. And then criminals and prostitutes and homeless people and uh, poor people are shipped out and said, here, you, you, we're, we're sending you out and giving you a, a, a chunk of land. Make babies go. That has happened a lot in many areas of real-life Earth history. So, as much as I'd like to look at that and be like, at the same time, as long as both sides are okay with it, whatever, right? You know, safe, sane, consensual. I've, I've mentioned those three words several, several times because I've been covering Enterprise and TOS. So as long as they're both down with it, sure, whatever. Whether they are or not is, of course, debatable. What is not debatable is that this is still a con. Why? No, no, not that, not that con. God damn it, guys! No, a, this is a a scam. This is a very classic example of a scam. In fact, it's so classic that I'm not even sure I can think of a better example or a better analogy. Here's this amazing thing: as long as I keep giving it this injection or this pill, it will continue to be this amazing thing. Take the pill away, and it degrades instantly into a substantially lesser quality product. Yes, I know I'm referring to women as products. Shut up. It's the episode, not me. They're, they're Micargo. But that is what he's doing. Look at this! And then he leaves, the drug wears off, and they'll go back to being homely. Word, episode's words, right there. Because, you know, not having your makeup done and your hair dolled up apparently makes you homely? I don't understand anything. Whatever. So that's, okay, that makes perfect sense. False value. Degradation of the pill. He's still a con man. Cool, cool. I'm more of a Krug person myself, but the fact is, this then leads to the big thing. Okay, you give us the wives, we give you the Lithian. Okay, sure. Then the wives are down and the, the miners are idiots. And what happens, what follows is the weirdest sequence of events. So, uh, Eve rushes out into the, the storm. Just a bit earlier, they exposit that if you go out in that storm, it's possible to get lost within 15 feet of your front door. That makes sense. Real-life sandstorms are absolutely terrifying and can literally strip you down to your bone at the worst level. So, okay, pretty dangerous. Nobody suffers ill effects from it, but let's ignore that for the moment. So she rushes out, desperately being angry, because why don't you just have me be the loser? Take, take a raffle, and the loser gets me, because I'm so unwanted and I'm so unloved, blah, blah, blah rushes out. Um, minor dude, I didn't write down his name and I don't care, rushes out to save her. 
Okay, that's actually kind of decent. I'm with him on that. You know, basic decency of human life. Kirk then goes out as well. That doesn't work out all that well. Um, this then leads to them deciding to beam up to the ship. I remind you that at this point they're on battery power and uh, that power is draining constantly. So they decide to risk beaming up to the ship when they could have just called the ship and been like, hey, you want to do this scan for me? Which I have a feeling sending a message might have been a little bit less power consuming than beaming to the ship. Oh, hey, I found something tech-wise I can actually poke at. Then, he's up on the ship. He gets angry at Scotty. Everything's everything's going badly. Then, he actually apologizes to Scotty. We cut back down to the bottom, and we follow, like, several minutes. I should have counted how long. We follow several minutes of the Honeymooners. I, I don't even know what else to call it. There's several minutes of them just... Nit nitpicking at each other and henpicking at each other and just back and forth and back and forth like written like an old married couple actually a stereotypical old male uh, old married couple and we get a lot of the oh men can't do this oh women can't do this oh men can't do this and it's just your typical genderist crap being thrown at each other's faces the two actually get to the point of argumentative then, then Kirk and uh, Mud finally show up and say, Hey, yeah, we're here. Here's the Venus drug. Here's the explanation for everything I've said. Now, hear me out for a second. I do not like this episode. I think that my overall demeanor gets that across. But up until this point, I've actually been kind of with it. It's like, all right, sure, whatever. At least I can understand it, process it, and it's cool. Oh, by the way, the Venus drug's fake. What? This is so stupid, I actually don't have words for it. Apparently, see, okay, the episode hammers in the point over and over and over again that these women are so hot and everyone's just falling heads over heels for them and they're just so amazing and everyone just can't help but stare. There's a bit earlier on where freaking Harry Mudd is in... The, the the conference room where his trial has just happened, right? And there are guards standing right there. They're in the shot. And he's talking about, ha, 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 soon Kirk will be taking orders from me and I'll take over the ship. And, what? and they're so gobsmacked by the women, I guess, that it never occurs to them to mention anything. Again, this is why I brought up earlier that the episode hammers this point in constantly, that everyone on the ship is just gobsmacked by these women. Then they mention that there has to be something supernatural about it. There, there's something just unnatural about the way they do it. They're, the episode never mentions this, but my first third thought was the word siren. These are sirens. I'm astonished they didn't actually try to deposit that as a theory for what's going on here. They even mentioned the possibility they might be aliens or an illusion. God's sakes, there's a scene where Dr. McCoy asked, I think it was Ruth, to go by the medical scanner, which starts going off simply by her presence. Why? She's a completely normal human being who has done nothing and doesn't have any magic drug. Remember? Because it's a fake. It's a placebo. It does nothing. Except for the fact that, and this is even more upsetting, we see what they look like when they don't have it, and then we see what they look like seconds later after they've taken the placebo. They, 
They put old lady makeup on them when they're doing the they-don't-have-it thing. And their hair is long and ratty, for God's sakes. It gives them a complete makeup job and a hairdo thing. And that is, it's worth noting, it. That's all it does, is it touches up their hair and their makeup. What? I don't know about you guys, whenever I'm getting ready to, to go on camera, you know, I stand in front of the, the mirror here and I'm like, okay. Okay, and I take my wonder drug, which is actually just a placebo, and I use confidence and free will and, and just, just the power of thought, I guess, and good vibes, I don't know, in order to give myself a makeover on the spot. That's how I, that's how I shave uh, every other day. I just go, I just go, I look in the mirror and I go, and then the hair just slides right off. Perfect, perfect shave every time. This is nonsense even by TOS's standards. This is nonsense by TAS's standards. This is so stupid. And it wouldn't be as stupid if the entire episode wasn't trying to hammer in the opposite point constantly. There's even a bit, which I'm sure some of you would dive into the comments to remind me of, of where Kirk mentions... Uh, no, 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 it's actually McCoy. Kirk and McCoy are debating it. McCoy mentions, no, it's like they're, they're acting beautiful. No, strike that, strike that. And it's just like, oh, uh-huh, you're clever, episode. <sighs> I... Has anybody got anything on this twist? I'm actually curious. I have never heard anyone personally come up with anything worth a damn when it comes to this twist. So I'm challenging you right now, legit. I would love to hear it if you can come up with something that evens out this twist to make it less... Please, I would add that this is not a joke or an exaggeration. I would love to hear your thoughts on how to make this work other than, you know space magic, which is basically the point we're at. Whatever. The episode tiles up, you know, and, and she decides to stay behind because I don't actually know why. They get their lithium and then immediately go into Starbase and they're like, what are you doing using lithium? We've got dilithium. We've had dilithium for like the last hundred years. Oh. Wait. Kirk slowly turns towards Scotty. Scotty! Scotty! 